Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. If you want to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to continue um, our study in the Sermon on the Mount, focusing this morning on just one verse, uh, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. And so as we uh, approach this text, I shared very briefly this morning with our, our, uh, our leadership team as we got together and prayed before service, um, I don't think the enemy wants me to be very focused this morning. I don't think he wants this message preached for some reason because I had catastrophic um, in-home things happening from about 5.45 in the morning to 6.45. And, and it was, it's not that big of a deal. Our house isn't on fire or anything. But like, you know those mornings where like everything is going wrong? Like, and, and it's usually Sunday. It's usually a Sunday morning. Enemy doesn't want you at church. That's the morning the kids will fight. That's the morning the car doesn't start. You know how it goes. We're, we've all been in this experience together. And so I know when there's a message that the Lord's really going to move and do something special because I get attacked the morning thereof. Something breaks, something happens. And it was kind of like a sequence of events. So I'm really excited. I'm terrified to go home. But I'm really excited about what God's going to do with us this morning. He's got something for us. So, and he always does, but there's just sometimes there's these, this weight to the text. There's this weight to the message. And, and I think that the Lord's going to do something really awesome here today. As we began Matthew chapter six, we've already marched through a couple sections in this chapter. And I just want to bring you up to speed with what we've been through thus far. As we've talked about in the first section of this, this chapter, Jesus addressed how we give in verses one through four. Um, giving in a way that's not for public recognition, that doesn't gain admiration of other people, but giving in such a way so that God is the one who sees. It's unto God. It's a heart of giving that's reflected. Then in verses 5 through 8, BJ taught on this a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we pray, or better said, maybe the heart that we pray from. The heart that I'm praying from, what's the purpose of my prayer? What's the attitude of my prayer? And we had two comparisons in the latter section on prayer in that, that passage that we studied two weeks ago because last week we were all together at the four church in the park thing. And so two weeks ago, I just want to brief us on these because I think this matters for where we're going this morning. In the first of the two comparisons in the latter section on prayer, Jesus urged us not to be like hypocrites who pray to be seen. In other words, they practice spirituality in such a way to be observed by others and honored by others, but they're not really doing it for the right reasons. And so Jesus talked about the true motive of this self-piety. And by saying hypocrites, he's saying of the Pharisees that they're motivated by self, that they're about them, they're about being seen, and that we ought to pray within the room privately rather than standing in the public square with our hands raised, which I don't see many of you doing, um, but when it comes to our spirituality, a lot of times we're a lot better on, we're a lot better at revealing how spiritual we are on Instagram than we are in actuality in the private room. I see social media in many ways as the avenue that people will choose to glorify their spirituality. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be a spiritual people, and God isn't saying that we shouldn't pray in public. Jesus isn't teaching that we should not pray in public. What he is teaching is that's not why we pray, to be seen to be public. We're praying because our heart is moving in the direction that God is taking it in, that we're doing this relationally between us and him. And I don't know about you guys, but when we think about relationships, our relationship with Christ and our relationship with others, how, how uh, loved would your spouse feel if the only time you said you loved them, it was in front of a lot of people, right? You get into the mall and you've been fighting all day and you step up on a chair and go, 
I love my wife. Do you want to know how much I love my wife? She's like, shut up. Like, we just fought. You, you, like, you didn't do the dishes this morning. Whatever. You haven't shown me that, but you're going to proclaim it from all these people. We can't be hypocritical about our relationship with God in that way. In other words, when we pray, we ought to be praying from a position of humility in private that is reflected in public. And so we don't want to be hypocritical. Again, not discouraging public prayer in any way. Jesus himself prayed publicly, and did, so did the early church. In Acts chapter 1, 3, 4, you see all these situations where people were praying publicly, so it's not a sin to do that, but the motivation matters. The heart situation matters. So when I pray with you guys on Sundays, it's to be an outpouring of my prayer life throughout the week or an opportunity for me to pray over the church what the Lord's been doing in my heart, not an opportunity to show you how good of a prayer that I am. You know, with all the eloquent words of wisdom, but no heart, no relationship with God on the inside. So the first of the two things that we saw at the end of that text on prayer that we studied last time in verses um, five through eight of Matthew six, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And the second one is he urges us in this way. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles. Don't babble like the Gentiles. Prayer is not valuable because it's long or eloquent. In fact, one of the most effective prayers prayed in the Gospels was, Lord, save me, as Peter sank into the water. It's a pretty effective prayer, wouldn't you say? And it was definitely from the heart, I would think, in that situation as well. I'm dying. It didn't take a big buildup. It didn't take the proper words organized in such a way to sound really good in front of the other guys shouting over the storm. Peter prayed from his heart, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. Sometimes a short prayer is the right prayer. Sometimes something that's just sincere. It doesn't need long or eloquent words. It's valuable when the person praying understands that the Father knows the need before you even speak it. God knows your need already. You don't have to butter him up. You don't need a lot of thee, thou, thys to get in the, the favor of God. So this directs us in our prayer by approaching him honestly without pretense. If I am known by God and allowed to approach him, then there's safety in prayer. Did you catch that? There's safety in confession and repentive prayer because God knows me. And because he knows me, if I can approach him in prayer without being struck dead, he will hear me. It's a powerful thing. There's a safety there for us. And there should be an openness in being known by God. Because of Jesus' victory over sin on the cross, you know this verse well. Hebrews 4.12 says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Approach that throne with boldness. Don't lack humility. Humility is appropriate there too, but we can come into that place of approaching God boldly because of what Jesus has done. John Stott sums up the end of of that section in verses 5 through 8 really well. He says, hypocrisy is a misuse of the purpose of prayer, diverting it from the glory of God to the glory of self. That's the the hypocrisy that's reflected in the first section. In the second section, the second half, verses 7 through 8, he says this, verbosity is a misuse of the very nature of prayer, degrading it from a real and personal approach to God into a mere recitation of words. Sometimes we fall into that at the dinner table, don't we? Sometimes we can fall into these routines, these things that we pray for. Keep it fresh. You're speaking to the living God. 
You wouldn't talk that way to someone you're in relationship with, would you? Reciting words or phrases, speak to God in reverence and awe and in fear, but still relationally. And that's where Jesus is going to go next. With that in mind, the reason all that matters is because of what Jesus is going to teach us in the following verse as he begins the Lord's Prayer. And so he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, you can follow along with me. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. The religious leaders, the Pharisees are hypocrites. They seek notoriety for their spirituality. The Gentiles were pagan. And thus they prayed to a God that was understandable. And if I can fully understand or sway God with my ability, then said God will do what I want. And that God is a God that's not greater than I am. But here, as Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he start with? Our Father. Christian, we approach God from the position of sonship or daughtership. We approach him as family, as children. Those who belong to God through faith and trust in his ability to save us and believe in Jesus and confess that belief, we don't approach communion with God with the desire to sway or impress him. You're not going to impress God Almighty. Think about how much we try to impress people or how we try to present ourselves in a certain way. They need to think this about me. That's why I wear this. They need to think this about me because that's why I post this. You're not impressing God. He knows you. And that shouldn't make you feel like diminished at all, like, oh, but I suck. And God knows that. Yeah, and that's good. It's really good that God sees through all of that because I can approach him humbly with openness. He understands me. He gets me. I can come as a son or a daughter. And you as a parent, don't we understand this? Don't we want our children just to come and have a conversation with us? Why is it that raising teenagers is so challenging? Because our kids stopped talking to us. When they were little, they told us everything. I failed this booger by those. Do you want to see it? No. But then when they're teens, what's going on? Nothing. No, talk to me. Come on. Let's, let's, let's dish. What's up? I'm fine. They learned that one from her mother. I said I'm fine. <laughs> Clearly you are not. <laughs> but but you understand like this there's this disconnect. It's difficult because our kids are struggling with this becoming an adult thing and we want our children to come to us as children and talk with us and be near to us. And God says this as Jesus teaches us to pray, you approach God in heaven as our father. There's familiarity. There's closeness there. The children of God begin with a call to him as father. And this was extremely rare usage of this word in the religious time period. The Jews did not refer to God often. It happened, but it was very rare. It's very rare in literature to find the word father used as a name for God. The Jews at this time would prefer titles for God that were something to the nature of sovereign Lord. King of the universe. They would refer to him in a way that was higher and, and far away from them. And we're going to get into the second half of what Jesus said in this verse in a minute. But here he opens with Father, and it's important because sovereign Lord, is that untrue? No, it's true. God is sovereign Lord. 
Is he the king of the universe? Please say yes. Yeah, he's the king of the universe too. And so those aren't the wrong titles. They're the wrong heart. They're the wrong approach because it immediately sets us in a position of God not being approachable, him being far off and removed from us. And that's not how God has postured himself towards us. Just look at Jesus. He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. The writer of, the, of Philippians says, as Paul writes in chapter 2, he says, he humbled himself. He didn't hold on to that. He came in the form of a man. Why? He held fast to the term that Jesus almost exclusively used for himself, son of man. Why? He is relating to us. I am one of you. Fully God, but fully man. Why do you think Jesus went through all that trouble? Just for kicks? No, he is God. He is the creator, but he wants to relate to us. It's why he condescended and became like us. This is the God that we cry out to, that we pray to. God wants to be approachable. Our attention shouldn't fall on the truthfulness of the title, Sovereign Lord, King of the Universe. Those things are true, but instead, Jesus draws our attention to the fatherhood of God on a continual basis. In all four Gospels, and especially in the book of John, you see Jesus use the title of God as God the Father. My Father. He cries out to the Father. And when he teaches us to pray, church, he teaches us the same language. Our Father. Understanding the relationship between Jesus and the Father is unique. When you understand Trinitarian um, theology, what's fascinating about it is that Jesus has given us the same language. He has given us, his people, the same language in relationship to the Father. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the cross. It has made us the children of God. Read 1 John. The whole book. It's short. You can do it today. Read 1 John. That's what it's about. We have been called children of God. Do you see what the love of the Father has done through Christ Jesus? We are his kids. I'm a man. We're children. We're children, and we need our Heavenly Father. We need to be able to, to approach him. We need to be able to talk to him about what's going on in our lives, and we need to be able to hear from him as his children the instruction, the wisdom, the love, the care, the affection that he has for us. The work of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection has restored us to a family positioning, giving us God as our Father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's like saying, Papa. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Boy, we could spend three hours on that. On that part right there, how I am a child of God. Who here struggles? When we talk about this, who here struggles with thoughts or maybe even actions that reflect the brokenness of our earthly families when we talk about God being our Father. How many of us have such a broken perception of what fatherhood or maybe even motherhood is because of our past that we struggle with this because we're like, when I hear father or mother, I think of something very different. When I think of a parental figure, I think of something very different. Do not project human failure 
on the perfection of holy God. When he says that I am your father, he is holy and perfect and true and loves you more than you can even understand. Our father who is in heaven is approachable. And we have been given this place and access to the father that we always long for. Maybe the leadership in your life has been awful. Maybe it has been mediocre and at very best it's been okay. <laughs> like you look at like even Christian parents, we're not doing it perfectly. The perfection of God is what we long for in a parental relationship. Do we have the same bond to God that we want our kids to have to us or even greater because he is holy? How many of us are terrified of turning into our parents because they failed so destructively? Well, if God is your father, then we're leading our kids to him. I probably hurt my dad a lot when I said it to him when I was young. And I was a teenager, so I was stupid and saying everything that came into my head. But I remember looking at my dad and saying, I'm not going to fail in the ways you failed. That was cold. But some of it's true, isn't it? Now, I apologize later. I apologize. You're like, gosh, Mike, you're terrible. I know. I know this. This I know. But you guys, you understand that like that desire to, to improve upon, you realize that you're still human, right? If we're not directing kids through our parenting unto the Father in heaven, we are failing them because they long for, in their souls, they're longing for his leadership. Now, he can work that in us. But I am still a conduit to direct their eyes to God because I can't save them. I can't save my kids. I can't save them from hell. God can through Jesus. Amen? He can save my kids. So I want them to know him because he is their father in heaven. He can lead them. The identity that we've been given in Christ, not based on worthiness, but that identity that we've been given because of his finished work is son or daughter of God Almighty. And we need to stand in that truth. We need to stand, not in our failure, we need to stand in the perfection that has been imputed to us from Jesus. We are his kids. You are his children. If you have accepted Jesus as your savior, you are a child of God and you can approach him boldly and you should often. The door is open. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get sick of you. And are you taking the things that you're going through in life to him as your father and as the one who loves you? Notice the language before we go any further. We're children. But did you notice how he began this prayer? Our father. Did that catch your eye at all? I had to stop for a second. I had to stop and like go back and be like, wait, wait, what? Our Father. Why is he praying in the group setting with a plural idea? In other words, he's not using any pronouns that are singular here or isolated or individual. He's speaking for a group. Our Father. Think about this. We have to understand this. This is so important. Loving relationship to God. 
through Christ Jesus doesn't just make us his children. It makes us family. It connects us. Thereby, prayer is a connected thing to God. Think about this. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So everyone who believes has been born of God. Family. Sorry, I'm not better looking. Everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. If you love God, then you love the ones that are born of him. 1 John deals with this concept often as well. Throughout each chapter, you see these themes form up of a right relationship with God begets a right relationship with one another because we are together in this. Family matters, and if family matters, then church matters because we were born again of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you live in isolation? Do you seek to live in isolation? Do you separate yourself from the family of God? not realizing maybe that you're intentionally doing it. I think we even do this on a subconscious level, but I think it's definitely conscious as well. When you think about, sorry, internet people, this doesn't apply, I apologize. North Idaho, we are isolationalists. Okay, let's just own it. We do this. We like our space. That's why you came here. You hated 405 just as much as I did. Right now, think about that. <laughs> Three quarters of the room's like, <laughs> we got to get out of here now, now, now. He just ratted us out. They, now they know where we're from. You guys, think about this. We are drawn to isolation, not by the Spirit of God. We are drawn to family by the Spirit of God. We're drawn to each other. We are drawn to isolation by whom? our enemy. Satan wants you alone. He wants you isolated. He wants you away from the family. And so when even the language that we use when we pray is to be inclusive of one another, our father, Jesus taught us, we need to be thinking and connected to each other because everyone who loves the father also loves the one born of him. And you're like, oh, um, that, that means Jesus. Yeah, I can love Jesus. No, 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 no. We are all born again in Christ, which means you have to love me. BJ is the only one who's excited about that. My wife didn't even say anything. But you guys understand, like... (laughs) Babe, that was one time to not be silent. Please. (laughs) See, here's the thing that everyone needs to understand about my wife. Are you guys ready? She is the most vocal person that I've ever met. You just don't know it, right? (laughs) I get an earful all the time in a good way. It's a great thing. But like everyone has this conception of my wife like, oh, she's so sweet and innocent. No, she's not. (laughs) She is a tiger. She just hides it really well. You're a powerhouse, sweetie. (laughs) Not in the notes. I apologize. So you guys, Jesus teaches us this. When we love him, we love each other. It's a byproduct. It's a natural outflowing. If I'm not loving you guys, something's wrong with me relationally between me and God. That's the key to understand. Read 1 John chapter 1. Something is relationally wrong with me between me and the Lord if I'm not loving you guys. And we need to make sure that we recognize how often in Scripture 
We are drawn to this inclusion of the community in prayer, in fellowship, in Bible reading. We are to be together. Jesus teaches as a model for prayer that we are to be more broad than isolated individualism. There's certainly a place for personal, intimate prayer. Jesus did it often. But his prayers with others flowed from that time he spent with the Father. In other words, it didn't stop there. It got more more robust from there. We see Jesus pray privately, Matthew 14, 26, Mark 1, Mark 6. As a general pattern of prayer, we have to embrace our position as part of the body, however, and this is the context that Jesus is teaching from in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching a group of people. When you guys pray, pray this way, together, include each other. That's why we pray together as a church. And again, I want to point out, notice as you look at the Lord's Prayer here, going all the way down through verse 13 and in a little extension in verse 14, the pronouns such as I, me, my, they're not used. I, me, my are not even there. Our and us. It's inclusive. We live in a westernized culture, especially in North Idaho when it comes to individualism. Especially when it comes to individualism. And it values individualism in a dangerous way. And we struggle to see the value of Christian community beyond the Sunday morning gathering. We've bought into the Sunday morning gathering as being this is when we get together. And the rest of the time, it's me against the world. It's I'm out there doing my own thing. We go out from here to our own things. Not only does that mindset need to be changed, we need to get together. And more often, we need each other. Jesus believes so strongly in the strength of community that when he taught us to pray, his model is given in such a way to call our attention to this. Communion with God cannot be separated from communion with each other. If you are communing with God, you will be communing with each other. If you don't want to commune with each other, you have a problem with your communion with God. You can't have this robust relationship with Jesus in isolation. Do you want to know why? Because it's horrifying to find a severed arm in the park. You ever thought about that? <laughs> Rob, you're sick. <laughs> He's laughing. He's like, cool. <laughs> I so appreciate you. <laughs> Everyone's staring at me oddly. And Rob's like, <laughs> I found those. I have a closet full of them. You guys understand what I'm saying, right? I was a little vague on purpose. It's horrifying to find a severed arm. Why? Because it should be attached to something. Because it is normal and understood to be functional and not dead if it's attached to something. Why is that important to us, church? He has called us his body. Say it together. Body. So when one of us is ripped off and out in a field somewhere, that's gross. And morbid and not the way it should be. A body is to be interconnected and functioning together. Do we view it that way? Do we view it that way in the church or do we think that we can live on an island and be healthy and not shrivel up and die? Of course we need each other. We belong together. We're to be interconnected beneath the headship of Jesus. This is what we were designed to do. It's how he made us. This is his created purpose. Fight against isolationalism. Fight against individualism, church. It's a westernized tool of the enemy to destroy us from being interconnected. 
Don't believe me? Go to a third world country and spend some time with Christians there. You'll be challenged. We should not be isolated. We need to be together. What's amazing about the opening of this prayer is that we would do it a great disservice to not pay attention to the next thing that Jesus says because he's drawing us to this familial, we're family, we're connected, he's our father, and everyone starts getting all emotional. Feels good. I'm in a family. Love you. Do you love me? Good. Is that a good thing? Not the way I just did it. But if, if, is it a good thing that we feel like family, that we feel connected and like we're together in this? Yes. What's the next thing Jesus says? Your name be honored as holy. Hmm. Does it seem out of place? It shouldn't. Because what he just did was marry two amazing characteristics of the nature of God together. His holiness and his approachability. Does that confound you a bit? You're like, well, if God's holy, should I be scared or should I, should he be dad? Like, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how to put those things together sometimes. It's difficult to understand, isn't it? The thought of God's name is to inspire reverence and holy fear. And it's difficult to blend these two aspects of God because we tend to lean towards one or the other. I know people who love the, the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God. All good things. And I know people who only want to talk about his grace and his mercy and his tenderness and his compassion. And if you ask me, which one is God? Because they seem very different. I would say, yes, they are all him because we're dealing with a being that's higher. We're dealing with a God that is above us. That's why he's worthy because he creates things and we don't get it. How is my body holding together right now? How is your body holding together? You're breathing without thinking about it. Now you're all thinking about it. But before I said that, like, like, now every breath, think about the things that we just do, that God created us to do. He is higher. He is more powerful than we are. And yet he's relatable. Sky Jatani wrote a book called What If Jesus Was Serious? A very challenging book to read. It's all about, it's all from the Sermon on the Mount. At this section, he actually provides a graph that I'm going to put up on the screen. Isn't technology great? Really quick. I took this picture with my phone. Oh, it's so readable. Do you guys remember cell phones like 10 years ago? The cameras were nightmares. I loved it. I actually looked good. But this is so clear. Everyone's like, yeah, clarity is not always a good thing. Here's Mike's ugly kisser. Okay, so you guys... This is helpful in understanding the familiar and holiness of God. I just want to kind of explain this graphic for you. You see on the left-hand side, our Father, right? And the title over the top is Intimate Father and Holy Other. So you're, it's this idea of like, he's an intimate father, but he's, there's also separation there. There's holiness there. Our Father on the left, imminent, familiar, loving, approachable, safe. This is the God of what you call sentimental Christianity, okay? This is the sentimental side. This is the softer side of Sears. You guys remember that? Is that hitting anybody? Remember softer side of Sears? Okay. Like two people. That's great. <laughs> okay. The softer side of Sears was like the bedding department. I was always in the construction side of it. I was in there with the tools because I was always breaking my tape measure and they gave me a free one every time I brought it in. Yes, I'm that cheap. So the other side of this, you have the softer side. You have the Our Father, the sentimental. On the other side, you have Hallowed is your name or your name be honored as holy. 
which is transcendent, mysterious, terrifying, unknowable, dangerous. This is the mystical side of Christianity. And don't think that I'm using New Age terms. I'm speaking of mystical as in the mystery around God and who he is. If you want to describe God the Father to somebody and you want to get into great detail, you might struggle a bit if you get into great detail because so much about him is higher. It's just he's bigger. He's, he's more powerful. Do you notice the place where these two circles connect and underneath it says the God of biblical Christianity is right here at the intersection of our father and your name be honored as holy he is both he is both mysterious and knowable he is both loving and righteous and holy are you ever surprised by how some people will get focused on different aspects of God and dislike other parts of him. It's really a flesh revealer. It shows the part of us that we're not relinquishing to him. If we're erring towards one side or the other, a lot of times we have a lopsided view of God. We need to gravitate not only to his grace and his mercy, but also to his justice and his discipline The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this, verses 20 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. This expression of gratefulness to a God who who has given us this amazing kingdom in Christ Jesus. And he says, by it we may serve God acceptably. Now it's taking a little bit of a turn. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I wouldn't recommend going with Hebrews 12.29 if you're going to preach the gospel to someone for the first time. I want to introduce you to the God who is a consuming fire. You know, and your eyebrows are like, mm, 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 mm. like you, <laughs> you understand that that's, that is a very real part of who God is. And yet it's like, he, he's a consuming fire. Yeah, he's holy and righteous. And it's an awesome thing to see God in the light of that. But we're receiving a kingdom by grace and we can express thankfulness along with reverence and on understanding of God being a consuming fire. There's holiness and power that should strike reverential fear in us even as we come to him as his children. There is fear and awe as I look at God and be like, there's a lot of power there and it's not unstable. I think we've seen so much instability in our lives that we look at that much power, we go, that's not good. When someone in this life, in this world has too much power, it's not a good thing because it's unstable. God holds all the power of the universe and more instability as a father who loves us. Why in the world are we so reliant on anything else in this life outside of God? Why would we go to anything or anyone else for strength and encouragement for building us up when that's who he is? Boy, it really explains why we get so far off, doesn't it? When I trust in anything else. And this is the one I'm supposed to be in intimate relationship with, with God, the creator. Do you struggle with wrapping your hands around all that God is? I do. I sure do. That's how we know he's worthy of our worship. Because I can't comprehend all that he is. He's 
He's more powerful. He's more able. He can beat the things that I can't beat. He's higher than the things that I can't get past. He is God Almighty. Amen? And he created us. And he loves us. And what we desire when we pray as Jesus leads leads us into this is that we desire that his name be honored as holy through our lives, through our churches, and in the whole world. We recognize the holiness of God so much so that his name is honored as holy because of the way we live, because of the lives we live. It's not just our our view of him, which is accurate, saying that he is holy, but it's the world around us recognizing that he is holy through the way that we live. That's not false piety, is it? That's what the hypocrites would do. That's what the Pharisees would do. Look at how spiritual I am. Humble people that, that follow after God and have a relationship with the God who is a consuming fire, that's where people come to understand what he's capable of. Humility and lowliness and letting him work through our brokenness. We are his children. We want the world to see that our God is the God above all gods. Psalm 95.3 says this, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. I... I Go back to that picture. We just studied this recently in our, our guys group as we're going through First Samuel when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. You know, and you guys remember this. And they come in in the morning after putting in there, let's go ch- check on Dagon. He's on his face. Pfft. Right? And they're like, huh, interesting. So they pick their God back up. And set him on whatever they set him on. They come back the next day. You remember this story? He's not only on his face. His face is removed from him. His head's on the threshold and his hands are broken off, right? Do you think God's trying to get their attention? You better take care of your God. You know? I mean, you, you better do some maintenance on your God. You guys, do you understand how broken this is? Like, literally? I mean, you could say that in the moment. <laughs> Fellow Philistines, do you realize how broken this is? You guys, we, what are we worshiping that doesn't have the power to save itself? If you have to repair it, you shouldn't worship it. If you have to maintain it, you, don't, you shouldn't be worshiping it. If you can save it, you shouldn't be worshiping it. God is higher. He is above us. You guys, I know they're like, this is comical. I am enjoying this. Good job, Mike. Good funnies today. (laughs) Are we idolatrous? Horribly so. We don't need all this. We need him. We don't need all this stuff. This is just tools that he's given us to bring glory to him. We don't need all these things. These things can't save us. Are we investing our lives in things that can't save? Are we giving ourselves to things that are not worthy of our worship? Are we forsaking people, people who have been made in the image of God for the sake of a thing that can fall over and have its head broken off? That can burn? All the while we neglect souls that are going to hell. Instead of crying out to them, be reconciled to God. Come to the Lord. Have you seen that our God is holy and he is your father in Christ Jesus?
Jesus opens this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, with recognition of who God is, both Father and Holy. It sets our heart position in humility and devotion and confidence in him going forward. This is why this is a template. It's not something to be chanted. It's a template for how to pray. Recognize in your prayer life who God is. This is who God is. You'll notice that this prayer begins with recognition of God, his name, his kingdom, and his will. To the first three movements, his name, his kingdom, and his will. And then in the closing half, as we go further into this in future studies, we're going to look at how our needs are offered up to him in recognition of who he is. Give to us, forgive us, deliver us. We have to recognize and believe in who God actually is if we expect him to work in our lives for his glory. Now, God works in spite of us sometimes. My goal is that this is not a church that God works in spite of, but works in cooperation with, meaning that we sit with our hands open saying, use us, your people are ready. How we pray reflects who we believe God is. It's not God bless this food so we can eat, amen. Our Father who is in heaven, your name be honored as holy and we'll go further and further into this. I hope that by the end of this study series on the Lord's Prayer, we, we can recite it from memory. We will know it. Not so that we can repeat it like robots, but so that we understand that these are things we must believe about God to cry out to God for him to work. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. If you think about it long enough, I think you'll agree with him. Because if we recognize the power that is in prayer and the priority that Jesus gives to it, we'll start recognizing that we really don't believe in that as much. And maybe we, we can get farther down that road together. Maybe you and I together, as we go through this, we'll come out on the other side as people who believe in the power and the robustness of a relationship with God in prayer. I can't think of a more difficult daily discipline nor a more vital one. In fact, Paul gave such a heavy weight to it. And I believe it's in Second Thessalonians, First or Second Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing. Just don't stop. People are like, how am I supposed to drive? Boy, what a misconception. Pray with your eyes open. Pray with your eyes open. Seriously, try it in all circumstances, with your family, in church. Pray with your eyes open. Why do we close our eyes when we pray? My last rabbit trail, I promise. Why do we close our eyes when we pray? Where in Scripture does it tell us to close our eyes when we pray as a template of prayer? Does it help you focus? Okay. Does it make you feel like this is prayer time? This is awake time. This is spiritual? This is not. As if God poofs out of the room when you open your eyes. He is here, now he's not. Now I can go do what I want. Break the barriers of tradition if they don't belong. So let's pray. God, you are here in this room. And I thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to teach us how to pray. Jesus, that you saw the priority of this. And I ask, Lord, that we would be willing to lean into the difficult 
that we would be willing to lean into something that makes us uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable praying in a room of people in a church with my eyes open because I've been taught not to. But I feel like it's a disconnect between the reality of you being here in this room Lord, and that I can live two lives. You are my Father and you're here. You are holy and you you are worthy of worship. And you have an approachability and we ought to have a reverence and an awe for coming into your presence. Lord, make us more aware of these things in our lives. I, I just... I don't want to babble. I don't want to say vain things. I don't want to use words that don't, that aren't my heart or aren't true or just pretentious. I need you, Lord. We need you to fill us with your spirit and to use us for your glory in a way in this generation that I don't think we've seen yet. And I want you to do it in us. I want you to do it through these people right here. Holy Spirit, would you come? And not that you haven't been here, but come in a way where you fall on this place as you did so often, Lord, as we read through the book of Acts, we see these amazing works of your Spirit. And Lord, I fear that because of our vice, because of our our attachment to stuff in life and a misunderstanding of who you are we don't even expect you to do powerful things anymore and lord make us expectant for this stir up our desire for you to do things and for you to renovate our hearts jesus to look like you father we recognize you are higher but that you are near that you are holy and that you love and are gracious. Help us to embrace all of these things. As we Let's just stay in a state of prayer. If you want to do that with your eyes open, if you want to bow your head, that's okay. That's okay if that helps focus. Um, but as we just take a moment to listen for the Lord, listen for his voice, listen for what he wants to say to you, and we'll close with worship. <clears throat>